0: This is Attorney General Insights from the DLA Piper Law Firm. I'm your host, Matt Den. Welcome to Attorney General Insights. I'm Matt Den, a partner with DLA Piper and the former Attorney General of Delaware. And our guest today is Attorney General Steve Marshall of Alabama. General Marshall, thanks a lot for taking time out of your schedule to join us today.
1: No, happy to be here. Thank you very much.
0: So let me give folks the 45-second biography and then we'll let you do the talking. General Marshall is a native son of Alabama first in his family to attend college, and then paid his own way through University of Alabama Law School and graduated near the top of his class. He was in private practice for a while, and then at the young age of 36, was appointed district attorney for Marshall County, Alabama. And he served 16 years as district attorney before being appointed attorney general of the entire state of Alabama in 2017, and then winning the seat in a statewide election in the 2018 general election. And unless I'm missing a student council election or something. You've never lost an election, is that right?
1: We have not. You know, it's easy to win when you don't have anybody against you, which I was fortunate enough to have that a few times, but now, very blessed to be where we are.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about that because when I started doing my research, I saw that in your three races for district attorney that you were unopposed. How did you manage to do that over 16 years, have three straight elections where no one wanted to take you on?
1: You know, you hope that it's developing a reputation that not only for the community understands that you appreciate and support law enforcement and public service, but really as it relates to your fellow members of the bar, that they see that you're going to be there consistent with the rules and what they require and that you do the right thing. And so hopefully it wasn't that people didn't want the job, but instead respected what we did. And I tell you, I still look at myself in the mirror as a prosecutor. That was the greatest privilege I've ever been given professionally. It's why Ascending to the attorney general's role was such a natural because that traditional role of the state's top cop was very much something I was comfortable with. Just the ability to try cases and to be that voice for victims in law enforcement was a remarkable professional privilege and really enjoyed that time.
0: Have you been able, now that you're the state attorney general, to have as much of a hands-on role in some of the courtroom prosecution elements?
1: Well, you know, as you know, you get to kind of pick and choose some of the things that you want to invest your time in, because obviously, Alabama is not the largest AG's office, but we're not necessarily small either. And so, you also know it's one of the most fascinating places to practice law because of the diversity of things that we have an opportunity to do. But yet, if I'm going to be able to invest in lawyers and help train lawyers, then I need to figure out where my specific interests are, and that's why the work that we do in public corruption, the work that we do investigatively and in criminal trials is something that I probably have my hands in more than maybe some other parts of the office, not only because familiar with it and feel like that that's where sort of my expertise is, but frankly, it's what I enjoy.
0: So you had the 16 years, three elections, unopposed as district attorney, and then you step into the pretty rough world of statewide Alabama politics. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, it was very much a learning curve. I was blessed with the opportunity for the governor to give me the opportunity to be in the role, but yet almost akin to what we saw with – Jeff Sessions nationally, I had to recuse because of a pending investigation on our governor, the very person who appointed me. And that obviously set a chain of events in Alabama that six weeks after I became appointed, our governor resigned. And so, very tumultuous period of time in Alabama politics, and then still was connected with a fallen governor as it related to politically. And so, you would imagine that during a campaign, I was referred to many times as the appointed attorney general as a way of coming at me. But the reason to take the appointment was just that it was a job that I thought, other than being DA, was really the most fascinating in state government. I really think being attorney general gives you the opportunity to do far more than many other constitutional officers ever could. And so it was worth that risk. Politics is rough and tumble. I learned that in a very real way. And then even in my own personal campaign, the tragedy that we had happen during the middle of an election made that even even more so. But yet, it's funny, when you go through that crucible, it clearly not only— reaffirms who you are and allows you to make sure that your foundation is strong and why it is that you're doing it. But also, I think afterwards, makes you greatly appreciative of what it is you give a chance to do.
0: Taking that oath of office, I don't think until you actually do it, you really realize the impact that it's going to have on you.
1: No, you know, when I found I'm an only child, both my mother and father had passed away. And I vividly remember in Alabama, we walk down the steps of the Capitol and have a seat before we actually take that oath. And just the memories that went through my mind of not only my mother and father and their investment in me, the different people that believed in me over the course of time, and then my wife who had passed away. I mean, it was just kind of this rush of memories that I don't know that I've ever experienced before. And the opportunity to stand and take that oath was not only a privilege, because I mean, anybody that is in public service understands that there's a limited window of opportunity to be able to do that job. But yet, I also felt a little bit of the responsibility to all those who believed in me to make sure that we're doing the job right.
0: You've made reference to it a couple of times just as we've been sitting here. But I think about a month before your runoff primary during the election, you have what to me is just an unthinkable tragedy happen in your personal life. And I know you've talked about it in Alabama in ways that I've found to have incredible grace, and I just wonder if you would share with us the story of what happened during the campaign.
1: Yeah, married to Bridget, Alabama native, beautiful woman, remarkable, inspiring heart, who impacted so many in a really positive way. Also struggled with mental illness, and was somebody as we discuss nationally the issue of opioids with somebody that began life with chronic migraines and other issues that dealt with continued pain in her life and somebody that struggled with opioids. And so, unfortunately, in June of 2017, she took her life and never did I expect to become somewhat of the face of mental illness, to be an advocate in dealing with ways that we can improve our approach to suicide and mental health services in the state. But yet, it was an experience that still to some extent seems surreal because you just don't expect it. But what I think is from that, we have embraced biblically what we learn in the book of Romans about God is able to make all things good for those who love him and called according to his purpose. And so for us as a family, it's been very much an opportunity to be able to figure out how we can celebrate our life and not focus on our death. And so from that, It's put me in a unique position as an attorney general, and mental health is not technically in my lane, but what we're doing with opioids is. But also, I think uniquely, that experience humanized me in the minds of the many people in our state, is that I wasn't the attorney general as much as just sort of one of them who experiences the difficulties in life and goes through good times and bad times as well. And so, in a very strange way, I became that newborn baby for the state of Alabama that everybody wanted to hug. And going around in my travels or even at the grocery store or getting gas, people who wanted to come up to me and share their personal stories of their own families and what they were going through. And so it's been very much an eye-opener for me, one that remains a struggle, even during, you know, we record this during the holiday period, where life is a little bit of a new normal. But I was blessed to spend 20 years of my life with an amazing woman. And from now, we figure out how to go forward.
0: You had to make a decision really sort of a snap decision when all this was happening. And I don't think anyone would have blamed you if you had simply said, this is a family matter, and I choose not to talk about it. And you made the opposite decision, and you talked very candidly about it, and obviously still do. What Cause you to go that you route? You know,
1: I think it was we wanted to talk about her and not allow rumors and social media to be the driver. It's the good and the bad of being a public figure in that you have a platform and you have a space to be able to do things professionally and personally, but at the same time, It also opens you up to those who would attack you. And clearly, as you know, you make decisions as attorney general that cause people to disagree with you. as a result of that, people don't always speak the truth. And so we saw stories come out not long after her death that simply weren't true. And the idea for us was we wanted not only her life to be described accurately, but also to make sure that we were being a part of a solution, I think God presented us with an opportunity to be able to be an advocate for support on the mental health side of the house, that we could be able to do something constructive. And so I literally remember we were all sitting on the floor about three days after Bridget's death saying, we can't be silent. And so surrounded by many people that we care about is when we held a press conference which frankly even to this day I still don't remember very well just cuz it was such a almost out of body experience but yet that sort of began a narrative that allowed us to be a part of a conference that we put on in the state at a couple of different sites last year talking about the role of the faith community in mental health issues and to talk about prevention of suicide and other issues that were connected to mental health and so Again, giving us a platform that I think is unique. The other thing that was a little bit strange about that is that it was good and bad both to be a public figure and to mourn a tragedy like that because you don't like to sort of be in the public eye when you're going through the difficult times. At the same time, I had a support network that was unbelievable about the number of people that reached out and wanted to be able to be a part of comforting us and supporting us that was unique to the position that I held. And the one thing I think that we took very quickly when we made that decision to be a little more public about it was after the press conference that we held, which is Bridget had been dead about three days, uh, received just a random message through Facebook from somebody I didn't know who said, thank you for saving my life today. And I think from that, we felt like that it was the right decision, but we just need to make sure that we did it in the right way.
0: And in terms of... I think you're right that people pigeonhole attorney generals and mental health is not necessarily something that people would be open to hearing from every attorney general about. But given that you've had this opportunity, what are some of the areas where you feel like you've been able to make an impact even in this short window of time?
1: A couple of things that were very much a focus and and definitely a little bit within the job responsibilities, one of which is in the criminal justice side, we began to see law enforcement officers become more mental health officers than we were with our mental health professionals. And so working through our diversion courts, whether that be our drug courts and our mental health courts, to make sure that if somebody was coming into contact in the criminal justice system that we had a chance to make sure that we were doing that the right way. They weren't people that needed to be incarcerated. Then they were people that needed services and needed structure and needed accountability. And I think we've been able to increase the presence on that front. And then the other thing that became abundantly clear for me, and the statistics in Alabama are probably not very different than other states, but I can go out and talk a lot about our violent crime rate in Alabama and the number of people that were losing to violent crime. But yet, We have twice as many people who die from suicide as who die from violent crime or very much an advocate in the area of drunk driving and to deal with that issue in our communities. But yet we lose three times as many people to suicide as we do in alcohol-related collisions. So that crystallized for me that this is very much a discussion that I ought to be involved with because if I want to talk about violent crime and I want to talk about alcohol-related incidences, if it's about saving lives, which is really what it's about – then we need to be having that discussion about suicide as well. And so when we were working, for example, on our statewide opioid plan, which the governor gave me an opportunity to be able to lead, one of the things that we saw clearly were issues of need involving our veterans, which were a population that was uniquely hit by this issue more so than others. But what we also saw was a direct connection between opioids and suicide for our veterans. And so, again, being able to pour into an issue like that not only was a little bit therapeutic for me, frankly, but also probably allowed me to have a little broader vision for the things that we ought to be involved with and how we can make a difference.
0: You mentioned violent crime. You recently wrote an op-ed article that was published in several newspapers in Alabama where you were expressing your concern about violent crime and what you described as about a 20% increase, I think you said, in Alabama and violent crime over the last 10 years. And you expressed also some specific concern about some of the federal sentencing reform legislation that was being talked about. Let me ask you first about the Alabama sure. part of it. Obviously, I haven't done my own research on this, but just based on your statistics, it sounds like this has been... A building problem in Alabama for a while. What do you attribute that to? Because I think the national numbers generally are trending down? What do you attribute the Alabama numbers to? A
1: couple things I would say on the data. And this is where my predecessor is Alabama Attorney General, and then the United States Attorney General Jeff Sessions really became a little bit of an advocate on this as well. Is that we saw, I think, universally, as you described earlier, a pretty precipitous drop in violent crime over kind of the heyday of crack cocaine into the most recent times. But yet, in roughly 2011, 2012, we began to see an uptick of violent criminal activity going on, not only in Alabama, but in our states so that while we're very pleased that over a 12-month period we saw roughly a 1% decline in violent crime in our state, if you look at that snapshot over a five-year period, it was almost a 20% increase, and over a 10-year period, it was a little bit more than that. So what we've seen is leveling out and the rising again, and so that our state, unfortunately, right now has the fifth highest violent crime rate in the country and the seventh highest in homicide. So part of it is the op-ed that we wrote. It was a little bit of frustration, and you felt that during your time as AG and that you want to make a difference in the things you see sometimes around you. It's a matter of making sure that folks understand. But we had the tragic kidnapping and death of a three-year-old. The same occurred with a 20-year-old college student, a random shooting of a five-year-old, a local sheriff was killed two weeks ago and then had a law enforcement officer killed three days ago in Alabama. And so that sort of crystallized a little bit for me, this desire to say this has to be a part of our narrative. It has to be a part of our discussion. And so as we nationally have a narrative about criminal justice reform and what that looks like, what I also want to do is to make sure that we remind ourselves of what Ronald Reagan said, which is the word victim seems to be the one term that didn't get talked about very much in the discussion of criminal justice issues. And so I don't want that victim focus to be left. We also had a very significant reform and restructuring of how we do Pardon paroles in Alabama, and that was a little bit of what was going on there as well. But as much as I concur with what we talked about earlier about diversion courts and what we do with low level offenders, the reality for Alabama is that our prison system is about 78 percent of violent offenders. And so as we are in negotiations with the Department of Justice relating to the conditions of our prisons, which is an important part of what we're doing right now, we also can't lose the narrative that. A lot of those folks that are there clearly need to be there and be there for a while. And so I think it was a little bit of one of those things that you have as a public official that you have that platform and you want to be able to use it. You don't want to abuse it, but you want to be able to use it effectively. And it was an opportunity for me to remind Alabamians that, number one, we need to maintain a victim focus in what we're doing on public safety, but also recognize that there's an issue that we have to deal with in our communities. Looking
0: back, is there anything that you point to or view as saying, hey, this is something that we got wrong that's caused these things to trend up?
1: I think sometimes that pendulum swings too far. And so in Alabama, we had the adoption of sentencing guidelines many years ago, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But yet those sentencing guidelines were a guide and they were not mandatory. And in about 2012, we adopted some changes in our law that made many of those guidelines for offenses presumptive, which although prosecutors and judges had the ability to deviate from them, it was very difficult to do so. And I think when you remove discretion from judges and prosecutors and those who know the business well, that potentially is going too far. And so that is one area. The other is that in 2015, we adopted some reforms related to our probation system and our parole system that it had, I think, some good thoughts, because I do believe, for example, if you're sending somebody out from prison, the fact that they can go out to supervision is better than them just being released into the unknown. That matters. But yet, we made certain assumptions relating to ratios of supervision from probation or parole officer to parolees or probationers that didn't come into fruition. And so when we were believing that we were going to have a 1 to 50 or a 1 to 75 ratio, when it turned out to be a 1 to 200 or 1 to 250, then we've not done well by the system. So that when we analyze who's going into the penitentiary in Alabama right now, it's roughly 60 percent of those who are entering are going based on violations of their terms of supervision, not because they've committed new offenses. So I think we got to get those corrected, and I think we have at least been able to reinforce that with the governor and the legislature, that that's an area they need to be able to address. But it's where sometimes good intentions have unintended consequences, and this is probably one of those.
0: The other thing that I found interesting about your article was that you were addressing the federal issue as well, the Federal First Step Act, which was largely popular even among members of your own party. And I think you and I probably disagree on the merits of that, Mm -hmm. but I admired your willingness to take on an issue that wasn't necessarily Alabama specific and where it's popular again with some folks in the party. Why did you decide to address the federal issue? Well, I think
1: a couple of things, one of which is from my experience as a prosecutor at the state level, we do a majority of the offenses, as you well know. The feds are sort of the Neiman Marcus versus the Walmart, which we were in the criminal justice side. But yet there were opportunities when we saw the worst of the worst. Those were the people that, in most cases, we were talking to our federal counterparts to say, would you take this person through your system rather than ours? And so what I think gets lost a little bit on those that were in the federal penitentiary was those are not just run-of-the-mill individuals, generally, that have committed these crimes. Typically, they were targeted as the worst of the worst in communities and causing the issue. So that if you looked at the individual crime itself, which is what our system does when we sentence— it may not look like somebody has done anything terribly wrong, but yet if you go dig into the details of those that got there, you find out that there's much more to that story. And so in Alabama, frankly, it's one of the areas where, a few areas where I've even at all deviated from the current administration. But when I saw the list of those who were identified in the First Step Act that had come through Alabama's system, there was a number of backstories that I knew that weren't going to be reported because they simply didn't know it as a result of the reasons why they were referred. And so my concern was really twofold. Number one, that those who got there, we felt like needed to be there. And the reason why they were sent there was because of the sentencing structure federally. And we do appreciate the truth in sentencing concept that exists in federal as opposed to what we have in our state system in Alabama. And the second was a little bit of the pullback on what we were doing with prior felons and gun cases, that there was some amelioration of the sentencing of people that were in there for gun crimes that were there because they had been involved in the criminal justice system before, and we didn't feel like those are individuals that should have been targeted for purposes of relief.
0: We, as I just mentioned, come from different sides of the fence. You're a Republican from one of the reddest of Mm -hmm. the red states. I'm a Democrat from one of the bluest of the blue states. You are very active in your church. Mm -hmm. I'm from the Jewish faith. And yet I was reading an article I mentioned to you just before we came over today about a passage from Micah that both of us have used as kind of a guiding principle in doing our respective jobs, which is do justice, love kindness and walk humbly with your God. And I was wondering if you could talk about how that has been a guidepost for you and how it has affected your
1: work. I think if you really were to give a job description for the attorney general, that ought to be it as to how to effectively serve communities. And i would tell you one of the more profoundly influential visits in my life was three years ago, an opportunity to be able to go to Israel. And I happened to be there on Sabbath and was just blown away by the joy of the people there inside Jerusalem. Just to be able to see that for myself was profoundly impactful. And also, by the way, to see in the old streets of Jerusalem, the Roll Tide shop, uh, which also (laughs) seems that Alabama football can still permeate even in the streets of Jerusalem. But I think you know this, that there's got to be some foundation from a principled side as to how we do our jobs. You know, I tell my people all the time that we can be principled and unpopular, but it means we're going to be consistent. And that's very much the way that I try to lead that office. But personally, and somebody that is putting themselves out in the public eye to the extent that I have a baseline on which my behavior should be filtered through, that there is some foundation in which I can make decisions, that not only am I going to be a better AG, but I'm going to, more importantly, be a better person. And I think what that verse speaks to for me is every day the way that I approach job is that sometimes prosecutors get mischaracterized within the criminal justice system that they're just ruthless people who are looking for notches on a belt and convictions when what I have found in the prosecutors that I'm involved with and respect is that they're there to do justice. There are many situations in my career where I've had an opportunity to vindicate individuals as well as to get them, victim because my mission and my client is not any particular individual it is simply to do justice and so understanding that as a very descriptive term of what i'm supposed to do is important mercy is i think an appropriate and i think grace as you described earlier kind of dovetails with that that that's part of what we do in the nature of our jobs particularly as it relates to the most vulnerable in our communities and our ability to be able to support them and then humility is a lost trait many times but yet as you know When you have this position, sometimes it is important for you to be able to look in the mirror and be grounded and to recognize that it's not all about you and to seek what we do with humility. Number one, I think the public respects that, but also I'm all about results and not who gets the credit. And to the extent that we're being a part of a greater good, that we are working collaboratively with others to make a difference, then that's all that really is important. Along those
0: lines, I know you can't talk about any specific case, but you are obviously a person who takes his faith very seriously, and necessarily a big part of your current job is dealing with capital punishment cases. How does your faith impact how you handle those cases and then the burden that has to come with having to handle them?
1: Yeah, I think I will say this. the, The hardest moments for me as a prosecutor were standing in front of a jury and advocating for death, because if somebody can do that easily, they don't need to be in the position. It is the ultimate punishment of our society and one that should be handled with not only a great deal of discretion, but also professionalism. And so I think for me is fundamentally that we're doing those cases in a way that provides appropriate and professional representation for the criminal defendant, that we – adhere to standards that are even above and beyond what we would do in a normal case. And then we have the procedural safeguards in place to ensure that those who are charged and convicted, in fact, committed the crime in which the ultimate punishment is appropriate. It's an area that I've spent a lot of time in my own Personal faith examining. I think it's too simplistic to simply draw from Moses and talk about an eye for an eye, but really to see ultimately what I think scripture teaches about that. And that was fundamentally important to me. But then, as Attorney General, to make sure that we are handling these cases in the appropriate way. But I know it is one the governor and I have had these discussions that it's weighty for a public official because I don't take lightly the fact that I'm sitting there knowing that somebody's life is about to be taken. But what I do have faith in is the fact that a jury in Alabama was a part of that process, that the judge had to independently review those, and that in any person in which we seek a death warrant, there are multiple layers of appeals that have taken place going forward. And so, again, as somebody who has literally seen it from the trial level and put somebody on death row, to being the person who ultimately authorizes the head of our Department of Corrections to initiate the execution, it is a weighty responsibility. And I never have looked at that flippantly or lightly, but understand that it's one area that we have to do correctly.
0: Time won't allow me to give this last topic I wanted to ask you about, the time it deserves, but I didn't want to finish without touching on it. You've been very involved in border security Mm -hmm. issues as attorney general. And one thing I wanted to ask you was it wasn't that long ago, 2012, 2013, that it looked like there might be emerging some level of consensus in Washington between Democrats and Republicans on how we find our way through this and between better border security, path to citizenship within the United States. And there were very serious people, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, serious people on both sides of the fence who seemed to be coming together and then it seemed to come unwound. So I was curious from your perspective as someone who has been very outspoken on the need for better border security, if you saw a path forward in terms of nationally for there to be a consensus on how to deal with these things.
1: I think there is. But at the same time as AG, one of the things I recognize is I'm not that policymaker that I sit in the enforcement side, the regulator side, and not the legislative side. And so it is my wish and my hope that Congress does their job. We were involved before my time in the DAPA litigation, during my time the DACA litigation, which is not an effort that is targeted at ultimately, and then say DACA, for example, the Dreamers, as much as saying Congress act. If this is a policy that you want, foundationally, let's do it through the way that the framers set up our form of government and not by executive action in the executive branch. The other thing that I would say, this really comes from a little bit of the law enforcement side for me, as somebody who ran a drug task force, for example, in a community for a long time. The Sinaloa cartel and others in Mexico have used a porous border to infiltrate our country with illegal drugs, whether it be crystal meth, whether it be now the rise of heroin and fentanyl. And I just had a chance two months ago to be over in Mexico and be with the folks in Sinaloa and see what they're dealing with there, partly driven by the demand in our country. And so the idea of a strong border to me is about public safety and public security. And I also have seen a 13 year old girl beheaded in our state from the cartel and having watched her grandmother die, and sexual assault from those that are connected to the cartel. It is a public safety matter for us, and while we're not a border state, we are impacted by those. But my hope is that we quit talking about immigration and those that are responsible for it, and that's Congress, to be able to act. And so I think there is at least A narrative in place, and maybe to some extent the litigation that's out there may force the hand of folks to be able to come to the table. But again, it's one that I want to recognize that my role as Attorney General is to make sure that I'm talking about those issues that are within my area of responsibility and then also defer to lawmakers to make sure that they are dealing with what they should as well.
0: As frontline law enforcement, I think that often, I know in Delaware, I suspect in Alabama as well, you would see. Some of the impact of the citizenship issue in terms of witnesses who are afraid to come forward or even victims who are afraid to come forward, do you think that that provides frontline law enforcement officials with a role in terms of urging some sort of consensus in Washington?
1: Well, I think one thing that we can do from a law enforcement and particularly through our victims' advocate is to be able to make sure that The population that's impacted by these issues has understanding of protections that are in place. I think of the U visas, for example, for our domestic violence victims to make sure they understand that there is an opportunity for you here in collaboration with law enforcement and other victims' advocates to be able to get you some particular help in the acquisition of that visa. But one things that, and I will say this, is somebody that was in Alabama in an area where there was a very large population of individuals because of the poultry industry that were in the country unlawfully, that there's that historic tension that's always existed, whether it be in the narrative that exists today. But I saw that 15 years ago as well. And so I think one of the things that we saw was a need for outreach and a need for discussion. But also, I think that we can provide information and resources that allows there to be greater trust. I think there's always going to be that tension, but yeah, we have the opportunity to provide resources that otherwise maybe they didn't know about.
0: General, you have been incredibly generous with your time. Oh, I know you've got no, a busy Oh, that was enjoyable. Day. Thank you. I appreciate you being with us and wish you the best of luck.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. my time.
0: This has been Attorney General Insights from the DLA Piper Law Firm. This is your host, Matt Den. Thanks very much for listening.